1: Well, welcome to Nesson Dormer, a slight change in strategy uh, this week. You will uh, no doubt be aware that uh, I am not uh, Lee Calvert. I can't do those uh, Lancastrian tones. But um, seeing as you can't go to the pub, we thought we would bring the pub to you. Uh, And so with me uh, today, we have uh, Rob Smythe. Hello. And Mike Gibbons. Hey, Gary. Hi. And um, over to Rob, really, for a little bit of uh, chat about what we're going to be doing.
2: Yeah, so uh, Lee is a bit busy with life. Um, So we were going to wait for him, but we just thought... He's fine, by the way, I should stress. He's just busy. We thought we might as well just have a few uh, slightly more shambolic, rambling pub chats. Um, Gary's going to host because he's the least shit of the three of us, I suspect. <laughs> um, so it will be slightly less structured, uh, but we're just going to give it a go, see how it goes. Uh, it's all very strange for everyone at the moment, so it might help keep us sane, never mind you. Um, so today we're going to talk about Mexico 86 um, in its entirety, one of the better World Cups of certainly my lifetime. Um, just a one bit of housekeeping. We've stopped the Patreon or Patreon billing. We've actually done that, before because we um hadn't done a podcast for a while we knew we wouldn't be able to but we're gonna we'd keep it we'll obviously keep it stopped for the duration now we don't know how long this will all go on um but we just yeah we just thought chatting about old football might help help us so um yes that's about it really Gary, Gary and Mike should talk a little bit about how you're feeling about uh the fact the world has changed so much in the
1: last week Mike, uh, you're uh, you're uh, probably more affected in terms of finances and stuff. Um, you don't have to talk about that, of course, but you know, how are you doing?
0: Uh, yeah, I'm doing okay, thanks. i mean, It's a, a huge culture shift for well me and everyone else. So I think it's yeah it's been a very tough week. Uh, you know, emotionally, mentally, trying to adjust to this this new normal um I'm, i am I'm doing okay uh you know i think the best thing you can do is follow the advice do all the right things and do all the right things to the absolute letter and uh, which, don't be uh, a twat you know, don't be a twat i can't underscore that enough um and yeah and just uh look after yourself look after your people in your local community check in on your loved ones and uh hopefully We'll uh, we'll get through this.
2: I'm a bit disappointed with your reasonable comments, Mike. Where's your blitz spirit, mate? Come on, <laughs> you're letting it beat you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, yeah actually, this yeah. is
0: exactly the same as Dunkirk, isn't it? You know, Apart it's inc- from, it's yeah. nothing like it at all. But, it's
2: interesting. Uh, I, I live in Orkney where there are no registered cases yet. I mean, we know it's coming. There's no way you can avoid it. But actually, it's quite refreshing how sensible people are being. Um, there's not a huge amount of complacency or anything that you hear about elsewhere so yeah uh but it, it does make it weird as well because i every time i click on the local paper twitter i'm kind of worried about first case at all i mean it's silly because i know it's coming there's, there's absolutely no way we can mm. escape it but um it's it's creating a slightly strange mood because of that it's um yeah i'm glad i'm not in london obviously like as you are gary it can't be much fun uh
1: no i mean it's um i'm i'm inside and uh you know the 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 person I feel sorry for is my uh, my elder boy, Jesper, <laughs> because I've got nobody else to talk to, so he gets the old ear mm. bent quite a bit. But my, my younger boy, I've said to him, you know, it's it's okay if his girlfriend comes round and he's going to hers tonight on his skateboard, which I think is probably about as effective a way as you can move around before the, the, the troops are on the streets, which... Uh, you know, it's slightly alarmist, but who knows what's gonna gonna happen. But um we're trying to be we're trying to be sensible as everyone is and you know, I can't um underline your your Points any more uh, than you, you've said them is that we've we've just got to do everything that uh, that we're advised to do, and um, you know we might be we might be without sport and without normal life for quite some time. But um, you know that there, there'll be opportunities. People will discover things about themselves and about uh, their friends and colleagues and their communities, which uh, which may also last uh, well beyond uh, this uh, appalling situation in which we find ourselves.
2: Do you know it's quite sad? I barely noticed the lack of sport. I think it's because I spend 90% of my sport-watching time watching old sport anyway, so that's, comp- <laughs> so that's completely mm-hmm. unaffected. Mexico 86 is still going on in my DVD player, so, yeah, strange. I've,
1: I've, I've noticed that Liverpool haven't won for a couple of weeks and I've rather enjoyed that, so, um, you know, <laughs> thankful for small mercy. Shall we launch to Mexico 86, the, the main subject for our uh, discussion um, today? And... Um, We'll begin really uh, dare one say even uh, at the very beginning even even before it was kind of happening but 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 a little bit of personal stuff what were what were you guys doing uh, in the uh, early summer of nineteen eighty
2: six? God, I was ten years old. Um, Whoa, I was. Um, I do you know I can't remember anything about myself. Um, I was an entirely unremarkable, self-loathing ten-year-old. Um, Yeah, that's it, really. It's interesting that um, one thing that interests me about Mexico 86 6 is I have a reasonably vivid memory of it, but I have no memory at all of club football around that time, which is really odd. I don't know whether I was like a a glory football fan at that point or what. Um, In fact, I'm not really sure what I did with my life until I was 12 years old, because that's when I really properly discovered uh,
1: sports. So, yeah,
2: I have no interesting stories at all. I suspect your life will have been slightly more glamorous than mine.
1: I'll I'll come to mind in a a minute, but I think what you were doing, Rob, was growing teeth because we've seen that uh, most wonderful photograph that you used to have up in various places online and you looked at just the the most ten-year-old, you're the ten-year-oldest of ten-year-olds you could ever (laughs) see, Uh, it's absolutely splendid and uh, I rather hope that might surface at some point in the future. (laughs) What about yourself, Mike?
0: Uh, well, I, I just moved to Wales at this point that summer. Um, so I moved from um, uh, yeah, quite a rough council estate in the northwest of England uh, down to kind of a bit of a rural bit of Wales. So that was quite a, a culture shift for an eight-year-old. Um, and we just kind of adjusted to that really and adjusted to my new school. And I remember the big thing that summer being that uh, my dad had bought a VHS recorder or rented one i think more like i've probably got it from radio rentals or whatever. <laughs> yeah. um but with, with this world cup in mind because all you know I was, I was just starting to get obsessed with with football then um and yeah we had it in mind to record the games that were going on in the middle of the night and uh one of those games and the recording of one of those games uh pretty much changed my life and i wouldn't be Sat here now, I don't think. Um, if I hadn't done that, um, we could ex- that, I'll, I'll, that,
2: exclusively off. reveal that game was uh, morocco Morocco england nil. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um,
0: we well, we'll look
1: forward to um, yeah, that's a little teaser for that. The, yeah, yeah, yeah I'll, teaser. I'll come back
0: to that. Yeah.
1: Uh, I was 23, I'd um, pretty much just finished my exams I was graduating um, having had a couple of false starts in my post-school education and I think during the World Cup I'd started work for um, Dorothy Perkins in buying and merchandising at uh, in Oxford Circus there and um, I was living quite a high life and um, why not and uh, I was actually living I moved during the World Cup to the very flat from which I'm speaking now, where apart from a, a one-year bit of house-sitting, um, I've lived ever since. So, I mean, I know this. I've made this remark other times. Uh, the room just down the hallway there is where I saw the hand of God go. Um, so I've got quite a bit of continuity, um, certainly in my personal circumstances, if not my waistline, but, you know, can't have everything, can you? Um, so um, we'll begin then by by looking at the kind of strange genesis of this World Cup, because... Almost incredibly, uh, in 1974, FIFA got together and said, this 1986 World Cup, where where are we going to host that? And at the end of looking at all the options, they decided the best one was Colombia, would you believe? And, um... Somewhat inevitably, um, that, uh, that plan began to go uh, off the rails because uh, the Colombian economy um, was uh, somewhat precarious, shall we say, or at least the, the legal one was, and uh, we all know what was going on in Colombia in the 70s and, and 80s. And so there was a bit of a scrabble around, and Canada and the United States wanted it, but um, it ended up in, in Mexico um, and despite an earthquake, and God knows Mexico likes a, an earthquake, and you know, when they have death tolls from earthquakes in mexico the numbers get pretty big pretty quickly but the the mexicans decided to to go on with it and we found ourselves just some 16 years after previously being in mexico carlos alberto those yellow shirts and so on we were back in the the glorious sunlight of midsummer mexico um do you, do you, i mean what do you what do you think of that you know they have the whole world to choose from and they go back to a a nation that had had it just uh, 16 years previously.
2: Yeah, well the, one of FIFA's vice presidents was um a leading executive with a Mexican television company, I think oh, Televisa. Not. Yeah. Who's and the owner of that company was a uh, uh, a good friend of Yao Havelange, uh, the head of FIFA. So um entirely coincidental obviously. <laughs> um but I mean, yeah, but what I would say sort of from a neutral point of view I don't, that's obviously not how it should be um Chosen, But Mexico was such a great venue for a kid watching at that time. Um, But yeah, I mean, in reality, it probably should have gone to Canada and the US.
0: Yeah, Um, the fact that it didn't actually is what ultimately caused the demise of the North American Soccer League. Um, Because I think if they'd have got the 1986 World Cup, the, the NASL was on its udders a bit then and starting to go out of business so it was seen as this big opportunity to regenerate the game in the United States and it's the, almost the second that they didn't get the world cup i think is it Werner it Ross his name is who owns uh, the New York Cosmos he was the one who was like, putting up a lot of the money for the bid mm. um they didn't they didn't get it and he he just pulled the plug on the, the Cosmos a few years later and then that whole league collapsed so yeah that was the end of um a professional sort of top league Soccer in the US until the MOS uh, came around.
1: I suppose they may have been constrained because I think at that time they did have a kind of rotation where it was Europe uh, won uh, Mm. World Cup and then the next World Cup went to... um, uh, the Americas, so you know, maybe they were constrained a bit by by that. I mean, what I liked about uh, Mexico for the uh, World Cup is, is and it's the same with kind of cricket from Australia, is that the sun seems so bright, mm-hmm. you know, really, really bright. And what you've got to remember, and you know, we may come to this in passing, is there were only there were only I think four tv channels obviously no internet um you you, you couldn't stream anything you know you could you could just as you've already mentioned mike um have some vhs recordings of stuff but a lot of people Mm. didn't have that so you really got what you were given and what you were given night after night was matches from mexico with this fantastic glorious sunlight and one other aspect, I think, of this World Cup, which I think added to its um, to its uh, glory in terms of how we look back on it, is that many of the matches were played at altitude. And when I say played at altitude, I mean played at altitude. I mean, Mexico City is over 7,000 mm-hmm. feet up. So, you know, it's it's plunk Snowden on yeah. top of Ben Nevis and then run around and play football. Yeah. But what that means is a, a little bit like playing at uh, cricket in Johannesburg. is the ball rolling really flies and it really moves around so everything yeah. kind of seems sp- sped up you know like it was there one say speedy Gonzales, and i'll come back to that in a minute um the and you know that added to the excitement it was so other compared to um to what was then you know a, a, a britain coming out of the grim early 80s uh industrial disputes and uh harsh economies and everything else what a <laughs> What a joy it was to put the television on every night and there we were in Guadalajara and places that we couldn't even pronounce watching football.
0: Just to uh, go back to the altitude thing, um, I think, I think that the highest ground in England is Stoke City's ground. I think it's 32 metres above sea level, <laughs> just, to put it in, just to put it into context with uh, Mexico. So, yeah, you don't get the ball flying through the air in England in the, in the same way that you do uh, in the Azteca. No, no, I-
1: I'd heard, and I may be wrong in this, uh, Mike, because you're usually way ahead of me on this. That it was was um, West Brom, uh, the Hawthorns was the highest. Oh, was it West but Brom? Wh- whether it's one or the other is less important than the next thing I'm going to say, because I, as I understand it, even though it's only about, as you say, sort of you know a handful of meters above above sea level, if you go due east, the first thing you hit at that height are the Ural Mountains, because there's nothing there's the
0: flatlands oh, of Scandinavia
1: yeah. and, <laughs> and stuff like this and the, Europe, the Polish plane and everything and you've got to go an awful <laughs> long way before you get anything mm. as high and I, I understand it's the Urals that may be apocryphal but um, I often think that when I used to end up in, in Birmingham on the motorbike and um, somehow you, you you go past one of the Birmingham grounds and all of a sudden West Brom's ground was there and you realise just how tightly packed some of these West Midlands teams are. But uh, that may be apocryphal. Back at the point, um, we'll look at some other aspects which um, look, shall we say, interesting from the perspective of uh, 2020. The, the mascot was um, a kind of... If you gave a a kind of um, South Park animators or, or somebody like that and said, make the most offensive without being absolutely overtly racist mascot you can do, pretty much they'd have come up with pk not gerard pk of course but pk the official mascot of the 1986 fifa world cup a jalapeno uh, pepper that we almost could certainly call jalapeno peppers or indeed chilies back in the day they're wearing a sombrero and a zapata mustache how do you think that would have gone down in today's world uh yeah we're in the kind
0: of marketing think tank that would have come up with this I don't think it would have got past the uh, you know as soon as the idea was pitched it would be uh, batted down straight away I would hope um, yeah it does yeah it seems extraordinary to look back on it now that uh, that, that was approved but uh, yeah very very different times I was just trying to think what the because I don't have a memory of the, the Spain World Cup was it an orange I think was it, was it called naranjito something? Naranja like Oh, naranja. naranja yeah yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think I think it was um probably by the uh Marmalade Marketing Board yeah. or something but um but, uh, Yeah, the so way they, they
0: did you know the way they did these things was was I just seemed to be like well think what's the laziest stereotype that people around the world would know and and you know we'll build something around that. Yeah. It was strange. it
1: was almost it was almost a kind of different mindset because instead of reaching for kind of you know the the rich history of Mexican Mexico's mm. indigenous population, who are vast in millions. You know, as we as we know from um, the way they're being appallingly treated, but at the at the border uh, now, um, it was a whole different mindset because then what they they wanted to do in terms of branding is pick sort of the most obvious symbols of 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 whichever nation it was, uh, without going kind of full. Um, obvious for 1974 shall we say um but then sort of amalgamate them into something that then the world would recognize so instead of kind of leading or lifting it was very much sort of um i think sort of wallowing in the cultural stereotype so i think i think 1966 world cup was a kind of british bulldog wasn't it or something i mean it was yeah just...
0: well... World well Cup, where was it? Or something? Yeah, uh, I, I think
1: yeah. I think it was. So um, that's another uh, change in the um, kind of uh, cultural milieu in which uh, this was was played out. I mean, Rob, um, you know, we can all sort of um, roll our eyes a little bit at, uh, at political correctness gone mad for uh, want of a cliche, but. Um, you know I, I think this should be a a kind of joy of six really bad world cup mascots but i suspect you've already written that
2: no i don't think we have <laughs> actually i remember lots of people writing things about the london 2012 mascot or something like oh. world cup <laughs> um, yeah it's, it's, it's i'd never given the mascot a moment's thought but now you mention it yeah you're right yeah. different, different well, times the- and all that
1: By 2012 I'd I'd moved from Dorothy Perkins and I was working (laughs) in the University of the Arts London and um, I was in the School of Media and we had a few graphic designers and there were an awful lot more downstairs and when the 2012 uh, logo was, um, was unveiled I remember there was sort of emails going around saying has anybody seen this? and we were stopping in corridors having these water cooler mov- moments saying was this a kind of primary school competition that they did for this yeah. or something they couldn't yeah. quite believe it so i don't think there's any way a mascot ever gets received with um universal joy but god some of them are not just bad they're really really mm. really bad um, we so are, um we, we'll with...
0: move... sorry i was just say uh... we are talking about an era as well where um the whole merchandising thing in the 80s, it kind of kicked off with Star Wars, I suppose. And, you know, he had McDonald's and all the ties that came with it. All these kind of things just I don't know, aimed at kids, I suppose. Um, <laughs> so it, was, it wasn't just this world. You know, a lot of very, very clumsy um, <laughs> yeah, merchandising off the back of these massive brands. Uh, it, it was rife, really. It was it yeah, everywhere. I
1: think some of it came, and we're getting into kind of cultural history here, although um. um never averse to a little bit of that is that the the olympic games in los angeles in uh, 1984 was the first kind of fully commercialized um olympic games where you know they were selling the branding and the sponsorships Mm. and so on they still had the kind of clean stadium but behind the scenes there was all the stuff that was going on and and the kind of how to how to do sports marketing book was kind of being written by was it pierre uberoth i think um from memory or peter uberoth or something who'd been in the i think the nfl um but it was the first time uh that that olympic games when the kind of power of, uh, of, of bringing the, the dread discipline of marketing and the joy that is sport together uh, was shown. And I think that toes were going into waters as far as FIFA were concerned um, to do with kind of the, the whole professionalising of, of that element of holding a, a, a big sports tournament. And, um, you know, uh, we all know sort of where that's uh, led us to uh, in lots of ways now. But um, you, know, you can see that the... the, the the shoots in, certainly in in football in in eighty six and then of course it it goes on uh, after but um we'll go to the qualification there and um the qualifying uh, tournament I mean I think the first thing we should we should note and I have strong views on this um which have been published at the Guardian um is that uh, is that there were there were twenty four teams that were actually allowed to to go past the uh, the, the various locks and keys and obstacles that FIFA put in the way of uh, the world actually going to something called the World Cup. So um you can guess where I'm coming from. But what's, what's, what's your views, gentlemen, on, on 24 teams for the World Cup finals?
2: I quite like it, actually, but only, cause I think, only because I think that's what I grew up with. Uh, so my this is my the first World Cup I really remember, so I think it's just embedded. As well. What I don't like is the awkward system of third place um, things. I mean, I, I get the 16 is the purest number. I completely get that. 32 is far too many. Um, but I don't know if 16 is quite enough. I mean, I, I think it is. there's no particular kind of reason for it. I think it's just something that I grew up with. And I feel like 24 is a decent number. It's still reasonably elite, but also more inclusive. Uh, and I think the third place thing of having to work out the four best third place teams out of the six groups It's just a kind of necessary evil, but I don't feel strongly about it. I suspect you do, though, Gary.
1: I do,
0: Mike. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, this is actually this is the first tournament where they tried this. So they had twenty-four teams at the eighty-two World Cup, and then they so after the group stage, uh, the top two teams in the six groups went through, and then they had a second group stage uh, where it was four three-team groups and then the four winners qualified for the semis. Out of that of course you had that amazing group with Brazil and Italy and Argentina. But outside of that you had you know a lot of groups where the results were kind of quite formulaic. There was nothing on the last match uh, sometimes. Um so that that hadn't worked really. So this was an attempt I think to workshop the 24 team format into something different. And I I actually don't mind the 24 team format and then going straight to 16 teams because i like the jeopardy it throws into the draw if you have four third place teams and it's sort of changing as the group stages progresses i just think it adds a bit of bit of an unknown quantity to the um to the knockout stages then when it moves to a 32 team world cup and it divides down equally and you know you know who's going to play who. That's a good you know, point. The, run, the runner-up in one group and the winner of another group in the second round. So, for example, if, in 1990, be, yeah, be, it yeah.
2: kind of throws the whole schedule open. Yeah, it's a really good point, that.
0: Yeah. So, in 1990, that threw up that great Sunday with, where you had Brazil and Argentina and then Holland and West Germany. But in in the modern sort of 32-team World Cups, you look at the draw sometimes and you think, yeah, I know how that's going to go. Um, yeah. Because but also because by having thirty-two teams in it, you dilute the the quality of the tournament, and you know the 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 better teams are sort of thinned out across the groups a bit more, and they've just got more chance of getting through. So, uh, but you know we're going to go to forty-eight soon. So, I mean, what's that going to be like? <laughs> yeah.
1: Um i would be interesting I'll, I'll put the counter view and you know if you want to tweet us, I think we're at Nessendorma Pod, aren't we? And you can tweet us with with your views. Um my view is that the World Cup should as far as possible um invite the whole world to it. Mm. And um I'm gonna gonna come to 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 how the twenty fourteen the flaws of the twenty four team uh tournament uh in a moment but I just want to address the point about quality because uh, my view is that the quality will come through. If you have a last hmm. 16, it doesn't matter whether that last 16 is is the result of, of 24 teams being whittled to 16 or 48 teams being whittled to 16. We'll still have that quality. Um, and God knows when we had 24-team World C- Cups and certainly 32-team World Cups, there were some pretty bloody dull games and poor quality matches even there so you don't it's not quite a linear relationship between if you like the the standing of the team and the quality of the the football but I remember looking to see what a 48 team seeded World Cup might might look like and I'm pretty sure the example I came up with was if there were three team groups, and I know that causes some difficulties with matches being played and everything, and none of it's easy, I understand that, mm. but if England were in the the, the pot of of uh, 16, if you like, and then the second pot of 16 were the those ranked between 17 and 32, and then the next pot was 33 and 48, England might end up in a group, I think at the time I looked at it, it was with Poland and Senegal, now, you're not going to tell me that England against Poland and England against Senegal uh, aren't matches that look attractive and would sit well at a, a World Cup finals. And you could repeat that over and over again because it's been, as we know, partly because of of players uh, being able to move and play globally, a, a much greater flattening of the standards of national teams. And, I mean, I... I, I can understand why there was no 48-team World Cup, even even a matter of a couple of World Cups ago, but I think the time is, is right now for a, an expansion, because let's have a look at how the 24-team the World Cup at Mexico worked out. Um, so UEFA at that at that time had nearly 50% of the teams, they had 14 representatives at that World Cup, 14 of 24... Um, that's over, that's strong, over
0: 50, yeah, I think.
1: Oh it's over 50%. God, you're right. Yeah, um I'm just i really good at maths, Gary. <laughs> you, you, you know uh, there, there are many reasons Fuck especially at that's... the moment. <laughs> many reasons especially at the moment not to be not to be in your mid to late 50s um but that's that's also one of them. Um so CONCACAF which is the the Americas there. Mexico grabbed one as a host and there was one qualifying place yeah. for the whole of CONCACAF which Seems you know is obviously not acceptable in today's world. Then you've got the South American Federation, which I think nowadays has five, but then they had four, which obviously is one too few, and I might argue two too few. And then the really ludicrous thing: Oceania has none because presumably they lost a um, playoff against uh, the Asian Federation, so against Australia, wasn't it? Yeah, Yeah. Australia lost against Scotland. Scotland. Yeah. Oh, it's to Europe, yeah. Um, and mm. then the the other two federations. So you've got the whole of Asia represented by two clubs. Obviously, we'll come to them when we look at the, the groups. But, you know, there's quite a lot of football playing and football fans there. And just two uh, nations represented by Asia. And then the whole of Africa, which, you know, obviously has... has um, hugely influenced uh, football in in Europe over the last two decades never mind the the last few years represented by just two nations so it's clearly mm. untenable to to go with 24 in these days the question is whether it's 36 or 48 and my view would be if you're going to hold a party once every four years and invite the whole world let's try and invite the whole world mm. and as long as we get a last 16 uh, onwards and the the tournament isn't too bloated beyond uh, six or seven weeks, which I believe can be done. Uh, I'm all for 48 uh, I, teams. I don't agree yeah. with that at all, I have to say. <laughs> um, well, I
2: agree with the distribution. No. I would have 24 or 16, and obviously uh, the battle UEFA wouldn't have as high a percentage. I just think far too many games, far too much mediocrity. I, mm. I, I, I still prefer these tournaments to be elite competitions, but I, I mean, I get the argument. Yeah, It's not that important to yeah, like, it's crazy actually. I mean, it's just the, the the way things were at the time with African football. Obviously, despite that famous Pele quote, it was still marginalised. Things are a lot better now. Like if they don't never will go back to twenty four, but if they did, you probably have what four or five African teams, five South American, so on. So, um,
0: yeah, I yeah. think what what you need really is. You have to strike a balance between being elitist and, yeah, and being inclusive. inclusive. Yeah, exactly. You know, it is, a, it is a World Cup with the emphasis on world. So you know, you just you don't want too many European teams in there. And if you look at if you fast forward to Italian ninety, if you look at what Cameroon did and Costa Rica did, you know they're really like landmark moments for 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 them and their confederations, really, because it it's those kind of things that earn them earn them more places in the competition. So they yeah they do need the window to be able to to make that case, don't they? Mm.
1: They do. Um, so we'll move to the the groups, and as I say, there were three debutants at uh, World Cups uh, who were involved um, here. Which uh, uh, let's have a look. Those debutants were Canada, uh, Iraq, and um, to my surprise, and. You guys know a lot more about them than I do. Denmark making its first appearance in a mm. in a World Cup.
2: Mm. Yeah, they'd never really been close before, had they, Mike?
0: Not a uh, World Cup. Not to a World Cup. No, I mean, I think they in the. Oh, I'd have to look look this up. Um, obviously, we haven't done any research for this, but uh, <laughs> I think I think they they generally finished bottom or close to bottom of every World Cup qualifying group until. 82, mm. when they started their rise and they beat Italy in that famous game in 81. Yeah, um, but yeah, they, they'd never they'd never really been close uh, before at all.
2: But they had become one of the most talked about teams in Europe. They got to the semi-finals of Euro '84, uh, lost on penalties, and had various yeah. um, superstars around Europe. So they were they were really um, they were when the draw was made. They were the team everyone wanted to avoid because they mm. were seeded in the bottom group. Um, which led to uh, the first kind of wide, or the first case of the group of death being kind of popularized, anyway. Mm-hmm. But we'll, we'll get to that.
1: Yeah, well, um, we'll just uh, have a quick look at those uh, seedings. And uh, it is the, the kind of distribution through the pots that kind of suggests that there would all be groups of death. Um, so uh, we'll start with Pot 2. So these are, the, hmm. these are the nations that aren't good enough to be in, in Pot 1. And in Pot 2, you've got England, the Soviet Union, Argentina, Spain, Paraguay and Uruguay. I think that shows you know how strong Pot One is. So let's let's move to Pot One. You've got Mexico as hosts, mm-hmm. Italy as the defending champions, Germany as runners up, Poland as third place, France as fourth place, and Brazil presumably because they were Brazil. Um, so that yeah. would be Pot One. How did and they in it- how, just?
2: Quick, how did they decide them in those days? I assume they didn't have these coefficients they have now.
0: I think from looking at that, I think it's the, it's the top four from the previous World Cup. Yeah, plus... The semi plus and, Mexico and, and plus, Brazil. Yeah, oh, and one thing I know from a bit of research I'm doing for something else uh, mm. at the moment is England and Argentina were deliberately put in the same pot in order oh, that they couldn't okay. be drawn ah, against yes. each other. <laughs> That's absolutely the, uh, true. Yeah.
1: How did that work out, I wonder? Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Um yeah I mean again it's an interesting thing to to look back and um you know there was almost no kind of statistical analysis of of football there was there was kind of you know there were baseball i think was was advancing and it's always had its uh barrage of statistics and so too um cricket but um in football there was there was nothing nobody knew what an assist was you know and uh mm. nobody knew what a coefficient was and the only the only way we ever judged the team is well how did they do last time um so it doesn't surprise me that it appears to be on a historical basis so we go into pot three and we've got algeria canada Denmark, Iraq, Morocco and uh, South Korea, which sounds like a hell of a world tour, actually. But um, they were in pot three. And then pot four historically looks a little bit stronger, if anything, uh, with Belgium, Bulgaria, Hungary, Northern Ireland, Portugal and Scotland. So one of the things you can take from that is that um, three of the... uh, of the home nations qualified in England in pot two and Northern Ireland and Scotland in, in pot four. But um, before we go into the composition and indeed how the, those uh, groups played out, uh, any thoughts on, on that kind of seeding pattern?
0: Well, one thing it doesn't prevent actually, this is uh, an all European group, which I, I think very nearly happened. Actually, I think um, I'm just trying to remember back now, but um it was between, oh, blimey. I Didn't think England Martin almost
2: had... end up with Germany and Scotland? Or am I
0: Yes, not? that's right. Yeah. And Denmark. West Germany, so England, so
2: Scotland, Denmark would have been a storm yeah. group. But yeah, I think <laughs> so, you're right. I think, I think it was close to that and it ended up, it could have been Uruguay and England's group. But anyway, yeah.
0: Yeah. So it was England, Uruguay were the last two teams. Uruguay went into group E, which was the group of death. And then England went into, to group F. Um, I think that's how it worked. But um, yeah, it's, 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 very random i think the draws were done a lot more politically then than or they had kind of political sensibilities in mind rather than and now they're all done off coefficients aren't they Yeah, um, there's and, the various
2: rules like, like you say to block
1: certain
0: yeah no, no more than two European yeah. teams in a group and stuff like that So. I mean uh, it was it, much
1: more haphazard I mean I don't even know whether the draw was televised but it was probably done in some kind of town hall in some rural um, Mexican town that had paid for the privilege of it and it was probably sort of uh, Miss Mexico walking round with a with a placard <laughs> saying Group A, and then there'd be ping pong balls and goldfish bo- balls, one of which had been mm-hmm. in the uh, had been in the oven for a while, so they knew that was the the hot one and keep that one away. Um, and then they they sort of pulled them out, but you know it was it was very haphazard. And yeah, there what there was talk about, you know, we should. And I think the actual language was used for things like we should try to avoid an all-European group, but nobody, I think, quite worked out how to do mm. this, and so it was all kind of hoping for the best. But I'm, I'm absolutely certain that, Mike, you're right that um, England and Argentina, it was uh, felt best oh. uh, that if it could be avoided, um, yeah, that it, was, that, it was that was very
0: deliberate. That yeah, yeah.
1: And, of course, as we know in the world of sport, if you want something to be avoided, unless you absolutely rig the rules, there's nothing more Mm. certain that it will happen. (laughs) And uh, we'll come to that in due Mm. course.
0: A quick, Um, uh, sorry, Gary, a quick word on South Korea, actually. So they qualified, and it was their first World Cup for 32 years, I think. And three years before this World Cup, they'd set up the K League. So they built a professional football league. From scratch, basically, with the the idea that it would raise the standard, and they would qualify for the World Cup, and they did. And it's there. It that's the first example of a country doing that, uh, really, with, that doesn't have a great you know football uh, history. And then later on, obviously, you'd have uh, the US would do that with the MLS, uh, Japan with the J League, and you know you can see China trying to do that now. They're, they're building the um, that Super League over there. But I think that's the kind of first example of of that kind of thing happening, you know, setting up a professional, a brand-new professional football league geared towards getting to the World Cup.
1: Yeah, there was a lot of interest at the time because um, by the time it got to the early 90s and I was trying to teach stuff uh, around fashion business and things like this, there was a lot of interest in kind of um, Japanese models, but especially in Korean models of these huge kind of... um, of conglomerates uh, that, that had sort of fingers in car manufacturing but also mm. did milk delivery and and this kind of stuff and that whole kind of um Korean approach uh of of sort of planning if you like it wasn't quite Soviet planning but it was it was it was an industrial strategy that uh, that that runs sort of against the kind of uh, of what was then the kind of f- uh, free rolling, free market approach that was coming out of of uh, Ronald Reagan and, and Mrs. Thatcher, and uh, funnily enough, um, yeah, it did it did find its way into sport, and and funnily enough, looking at uh, the approaches to dealing with coronavirus, you can see the uh, the South Korean um sort of top-down approach is is uh, has helped them to to push back a little on the uh, the demon outbreak um so it, it still lives on uh even today so no surprise that Korea got there through a, a kind of planning and a kind of um, national effort in some ways so it was good to see them there of course North Korea were there in in 1966 my father saw the mm. play at, uh, at goodison um in that famous uh, side that charmed everyone before getting absolutely hammered i think by brazil uh or was it portugal Can't remember portugal, now, but doing... yeah. portugal yeah it's 86 we're we're at now and so um should we do these groups sort of going going through them i hope you can see them there um mm. and and you know we can just sort of riff on on um the the groups as they as they stand so uh group a Uh, had Argentina, um, that we'll mention once or twice, I suspect, in our look at uh, Mexico 86, Uh, Italy, Bulgaria and the aforementioned South Korea. Your thoughts, gentlemen?
2: Um, Yeah, I mean, strong group, obviously, Argentina and Italy. Italy weren't quite um, the team they had been in 82. Obviously, they were the holders, but they had had a terrible qualification for Euro 84. I think they won only one out of eight games. And they'd grown reasonably old. They basically effectively lost the entire spine of 82. So Zoff, Gentile, Tardelli and Rossi. Tardelli and Rossi were in the squad, but didn't play. And I'm not entirely sure why. There was a bit of talk that Rossi struggled with the altitude. But he was only 29. Tardelli was 31. But anyway, they didn't play. So they'd lost a huge amount of quality. They were very dependent on Alessandro Altobelli up front, who was a really, really brilliant player. She's slightly underrated. Um... But they didn't quite have the aura of um, holders, and I don't think—I mean, I expected to qualify, which they did—but I don't think people expected too much from them. Um, Argentina, I mean. Was- uh,
1: just before you you, you leave that, uh, mm. Rob, the, do you think there was a bit of? Because I I kind of felt it, although I've got nothing other than a, a kind of Trumpian feeling about this um, that. Uh, climbing that mountain in 82 you know Tardelli's extraordinary release of of passion after scoring the goal and so on that there was a bit of Italy being a bit like India after they'd won their kind of world cup that that there was always going to be a kind of trough a kind of recovery because the high of 82 was so high or am I just not thinking about these are professional footballers to go back to work and get on with it
2: there might be something that the only thing I would say is that a lot of them played for Juventus who uh went on winning relentlessly certainly domestically around that time mm. um I, I mean I, I don't know I, the, the UA for a, the, the euro qualification was a bit weird they just they lost and drew games they should never have lost and mm. drawn um uh, it's quite it's quite possible yeah I, I do think there was also an element of just, just losing some extremely good players um, and the next lot weren't as good. The team that would then do so well at Italian 90 hadn't really come through. Viali played a couple of games in this tournament as sub, I think. Um, but I think they were just almost caught between two, two very good generations.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, Scolacci was playing for uh, Modena, second 11 or something like that mm-hmm. at the time. And he was obviously <laughs> a big influence in 90 as well. Mike, what's, what, what do, you, do you have any particular views on, on Italy?
0: Uh, yeah, I think they they did what a lot of teams do that win World Cups is that they once they've won it they take a lot of the old soldiers on to the next World Cup as well yeah. out of a yeah. kind of you know sense of loyalty. You know, it was still Beersot, it was still the uh, the manager, wasn't it? Um, so it, yeah, I mean they they just kind of aged and that, and obviously they had no competitive games as well but between yes. something like 1983 and 1986 and. You know, that doesn't, I'm sure that doesn't help in terms of kind of keeping you sharp and things like that. Um, talking of things um, that you wouldn't get now, actually, Italy and Argentina in the first round, you know, the the winners of the two previous World Cups. Uh, that would just never happen. <laughs> you know, it'd, be, it'd be impossible for you both to be drawn um, in the same group again, I'm sure.
1: Yeah and they they played the middle game in the in the group mm. which was i think uh, a somewhat convenient draw between between the two of them and yeah. it, i mean Argentina at, at that point were beginning to reveal themselves they were the class of this yeah. particular field in the in the group stage and they they won two of their matches um they won 2-0 against Bulgaria mm. and 3-1 against uh, South Korea uh, whereas um, Italy had uh, drawn Bulgaria, drawn to Argentina, and then in their in their traditional way, they scraped through in the in the last game, winning three two against uh, against South Korea. I mean, Rob, I I mean, for a lot of us, uh, Argentina's World Cup sort of begins in the in the knockout stages. But you know, how did they do in that group stage? In your view?
2: Yeah, you could see signs of be it. Like, because of what happened subsequently, people often forget about Maradona's goal against Italy, which is absolutely beautiful. It's like he wait this bouncing ball; he takes it really early, which surprises the keeper, and also it spins, just puts it wide the keeper. It's going wide and it spins in. It's a really quietly brilliant goal. But um, he he was superb. He set up most of their goals or scored them in the group. I think he set up at least two of them against. Um, Career and he set up Borchaga against Bulgaria, so they they look pretty solid, um, and it was clear that yeah he was he was bang up for it. Yeah, uh, I mean, we should address. Uh,
0: sorry, Gary, go ahead, Mike. Oh, sorry. Uh, we should address one myth I think about Maradona in this World Cup is that there's this idea he was given far more protection in this World Cup by referees that allowed him to flourish in oh, the opening game with south korea i think he was fouled 12 times and we you know we're not talking about having your ankles clipped when you're running away either actually you know you know thundering challenges that were bringing him down um yeah so that that's one element of it and also before the before the tournament started there was a row within the argentina camp between daniel Passarella, who was the former captain and maradona who was bellardo's new captain uh, you know, it was a bit of a power struggle. Apparently there was a team meeting where Passarella called out Maradona on his cocaine use. Uh, <laughs> Ma- Maradona had to go back at him about um, some alleged infidelity uh, with a, a player Passarella uh, played with at Fiorentina. Uh, and in this power struggle, Maradona won and Passarella I think was sent home. Uh, they said uh, he had uh, Montezuma's revenge, I think it's called, isn't it? uh but he didn't he didn't play any part in the tournament at all so Maradona but at at that point is it's seen as becoming Maradona's team and yeah. yeah you talk about yeah Maradona I mean a lot of people think his genius kind of kicks in in the group stages but the Bulgaria game the last game in the group uh he doesn't score in this game and he, set, he sets up one of the goals but there's a couple of runs that he goes on in this game that are just sensational on an absolute dog of a pitch as well there's know, one famous one where he skips over, I think, three... He hurdles three challenges in a row and then gets a shot away and it just goes wide. And I think at that point, maybe you're starting to think, blimey, this guy is, is like something we've not seen before in the World Cup. Do you know, um, I think that's a
2: really good point about the pitches. Um, most of them yeah. were diabolical, weren't they? Really bobbly and awkward, um, which, again, I, is quite important in the context of what yeah. Maradona would subsequently do in the knockout rounds. Yeah, I wonder yeah. why that is
0: as well, because in, in the not, sorry, Gary, in the 1970 World Cup, when you see the ball being knocked around in that World Cup, the pitches seem fine. I think there was something about the way they'd relayed them all for this World Cup, particularly the Azteca, uh, where the, you know, the great moments of the tournament uh, happen when it finishes. Uh, I remember Gary Lineker saying, you would put your foot on it and it just slide away from you. It was all... Very poorly stitched together and and things like that. But um, so it, that I think that only made what Maradona did in this tournament all the more unique and special.
1: Uh, I mean, I think it was a combination of the the fact that pitch technology was almost un, unknown. And if anybody mm. is sort of under the age of thirty listening to this, we we just cannot. We cannot find words to describe the state of some of the pitches that were played on in the 70s, 80s, right into the 90s. Um, it's incredible that they could they could even play something that, that looks like football, so appalling were the surfaces that they had to contend with. But there was probably something else in play that would be different to 1970, and there's always a controversy about this, which would be the World Cup ball. And it was at a mm. time when footballs were getting lighter and lighter and flying faster, as I've already mentioned, particularly at altitude. But I think the kind of ping-pong ball weight um, of of the actual ball you were playing with added to this kind of bobbling about on these uh, unreliable pitches. And I suspect in 1970 it was still kind of a, a, an old-school... Casey, if you like, we used to call them growing up. Maybe not leather, but it certainly had weight and heft. Where by '86, um, the they were they were obviously becoming um, much much lighter, more difficult to control unless you were a genius. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to Maradona, I remember some of those early matches there, and we we'd heard the hype, we'd seen him play in that sort of uh, match at Wembley, I think in 1980 when he was a teenager, I, I think. Um, but as with... I think this was probably the last of the World Cups where where almost all the players were almost completely unknown because unless you'd seen them in, in 82... Um, euro 84 famously was not covered on television other than highlights i think and some of us didn't even watch that or many people wouldn't have watched that um so you know a lot of these players were completely new so you're forming your impression and yeah i I distinctly remember um thinking oh you know the hype about this guy is (laughs) it might be true he does look something special of course we were to be uh to be shown that in uh, in spades come uh, later matches. So we we'll go. To, should we go to Group B, which has the hosts in it, uh, Mexico, uh, Paraguay, um, that many of us had to look up on a map, um, Belgium, and uh, Iraq uh, coming out of um, long-standing uh, war. Um, extraordinary that they they got there, and um, I think there was a, quite a bit of goodwill. Uh, towards them uh, as a result of that Uh, but the hosts we kind of it was a time when you sort of gave a free pass to the host didn't you You just expected them to go through to the the knockout stages, and sure enough Mexico did and um, it was probably pretty tight between Paraguay and Belgium for the other qualifying place in that in that group so um, any thoughts on that Rob?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's not the strongest group, is it? Uh, Some decent teams. Uh, There were a few little incidents of note. Mexico Paraguay was a good game. Romero, who I think was South American football of the year, either at the time or would win it subsequently. Um, Julio Cesar Romero played for Fluminense in Brazil. He scored a really good late equaliser. And then Mexico got a dodgy, very dodgy penalty in the last minute. I think it was George Courtney who gave it, actually um and it was saved. he was he keeper. was England's referee at the yeah, tournament he wasn't was he? he knew about giving dodgy penalties that's for sure um and i think it was it was it was a brilliant save by Roberto Fernandez so that was a good game um i mean not a huge amount in some of the other games iraq were a bit unlucky against which games i think it was Paraguay when they scored like a split second before the half time whistle went um and they lost that game 1-0 they they were competent defensively i think they only lost by one goal each time but didn't really threaten uh, Paraguay and Belgium were decent teams Belgium as we know were going to reach the semis but they didn't really look like a semi-final team at that stage um yeah it was a bit of a forgettable group really well, one thing Hugo Sanchez was obviously a, a superstar in Mexico uh, and played I think he was around Real Madrid at the time I'm sure he was and he didn't have a great tournament he scored one goal against in the opening game against Belgium but he struggled actually um uh, yeah and that was quite a big thing um in fact, it was him. It was his yeah, it was his penalty that was saved by Fernandez. So yeah, he, he had a bit of an iffy group stage. Um, but, but as you say, Mexico were always going to go through and then Paraguay and Belgium. Belgium were always likely to do enough to um, qualify as one of the third place teams, which they did. I think most teams knew that if you win one and draw one, you'll definitely qualify and that you might be able to get through with two points, i.e. a win or two draws, which is what happened to Bulgaria in the previous group. Um, But yeah, probably I would say All told, the most forgettable of the groups I would say
1: Yeah, Belgium got through with a a win against Iraq And a draw against Paraguay Um, Hmm. So uh, When do you think they they ended up at the semi-final Um, Oh uh, actually there's one I'm not going to go back to it too often but it does suggest that there might be room for more than 24 or even 36 teams for a semi final Let it go <laughs> Gary Let it
0: go One thing actually One thing Enzo Still banging she- that drum
2: Enzo Shifo <laughs> scored a cracking goal against Iraq uh, not quite as good as did, um, yeah. the one he would score in 90 against Uruguay but it was still a really nice goal at that stage he was only 20 and was um, one of the brightest young players in the world I never quite fulfilled his potential I don't think even though he was a bloody brilliant player um, I think at that stage, people thought he was going to be like a, a De Bruyne level superstar, and I don't think he quite became that good.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, and I know um, Zidane's son was was named for Francesco because you reminded me of it earlier this week, Rob. But mm. um, but uh, the. Um, the thought about Shifo, who was awarded young player of the tournament, was that he was going to reach the kind of levels that Zidane was to reach a generation later, mm-hmm. but um, he never quite came through. Uh, Mike, uh, what are your views on, on that uh, quartet? Uh,
0: yeah, I can only echo what Rob said, really. It's, um, I think following the, the progress of the hosts in the in any World Cup tournament, I think it's always kind of quite fascinating to see how the players deal with that kind of pressure. And obviously Mexico, they're playing all their games in the Azteca, which is something like 115,000 people, isn't it? And uh, yeah, in the opening game, when they score the first goal, uh, Hugo Sanchez, I think he gets the ball and boots it into the crowd. (laughs) And, And they're a very officious referee takes uh, takes it into this and books him but uh, but it's a very costly booking because later in the tournament he gets booked again in the second round and he missed the the quarter final with West Germany. Yeah. So um, yeah. I mean as, well as we know as as English people you know an earlier booking can come back to haunt you at a crucial yeah. uh, crucial <laughs> yes. crucial moment at a world cup. Um, it was
1: ex- it was extraordinary because it was it world cups you know right up until probably even this is this, this century but this one was the full-on sort of tackles from behind as you say maradona kicked from pillar to post but mm. there was always there was always an officious referee who would book yeah. someone for taking a throw in from the wrong place or something so it was an extraordinary combination of allowing the most appalling violence to go largely with a ticking off or sometimes not even that uh whereas players would be booked for the most minor of um of showings really of of disrespect to officials who who did as as Danny Baker would undoubtedly say walk round with their chests puffed out with their badge proudly shown and their cards ready mm-hmm. to wield um you know they were they were different days um, no match in that group was won by more than a single goal so it was it was a very tight group and apart from Iraq. Um, you know, maybe this is a, a testament to the the uh, to the uh, formula because of those three Mexico, Paraguay, and Belgium. It would be hard to to separate them too much on which of the of the which one of the three would miss out. But of course, um, because we have the best of third places going through, none of the three missed out. Have you anything to add, Mike, or shall I go to Group C? You there, Mike? <laughs> Mike, have, I've dropped out. So, um, oh,
2: hang on, he has, Rob, he's bugged off. Let me uh, let me try and get him back while we're talking.
1: Oh, okay, I, I'll I'll fill here because we'll we'll move to um, group C, uh, which comprised um, the Soviet Union, which is still around at that time. Um, another reason why you need more uh, nations in the uh, World Cup because there's about um, probably about 12 or 14 FIFA members of today, I would guess, who are in the Soviet Union. So Belarus, uh, Lithuania, Latvia, Azerbaijan, Armenia, Moldova, Kazakhstan, all um, working towards the Soviet Union. And I'm, I'm not certain because we are, and of course, this will not be news to you who've been listening for the last hour or so, uh, we are not doing the level of research that we usually put into these because we try to do them nice and quick for us and for you, but um, they, they the soviet union side was probably based on a kind of dynamo kiev side from ukraine or a, or a, a dynamo moscow uh, side cuz they often did base their national teams on uh, a particular club 11 uh, or a club squad uh, france were the uh, team who were in some ways they were a, a little like italy they'd had their their glorious high in, in 84 with uh, uh, a, a quite brilliant uh, uh performance in the uh, euros of 84 only eight uh, teams in the euros of, of 84 led by platini who scored i think nine goals in the six matches or something absolutely incredible 9 in 5 uh, like like yeah. that but they they 5 9 in 5 9 in yeah. 5 anyway. so uh, get it, it was yeah he, he was a fantastic uh, he was still a fantastic player then but probably not at his absolute peak and the the former Skateers of 82, I think some of them were still around, Rob will know better than, than me, but they were still an outstanding team of France, but they weren't quite at that glorious peak of, of 82, 84 when they were amongst if you, if you gave me Certainly a European side that I had to watch them play for the rest of my life and I only had one team to watch. It might be that France team because it was just so glorious to watch. And then the also rounds were Hungary and Canada making something of an ignominious uh, start to to the uh, World Cup finals um showings so with that filling i'm rather hoping that uh, mike might be with us again rob have you managed to um get the steam going in the uh, in the boiler and, and get the, the machine working again
2: i think so mike i'm then... back i'm back I oh yeah.
1: mike fantastic <laughs> well we we'll finish the show there and quick up again no 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 <laughs> mike we're looking at group c um and we've talked a little oh i have uh, about soviet union and france who very much sort of uh, walked the group comfortably with two wins each and they um conveniently drew the uh, middle match between them hungary and canada uh bringing up the rear um so uh, unless there's much to say about this group i propose moving on but um, uh, you could jazz- sod
2: right off there's loads to say about this group <laughs>
1: go 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 go, go, go,
2: go. Well, well first thing is uh i mean the france uh You say France weren't quite as good as it had been in 84, and you're probably right, but they scored some beautiful goals throughout this Mm. tournament. But in this group, um, Fernandez's goal against the USSR from uh, the the beautiful chip from Jures, which takes about six players out of the game. Uh, Fernandez controls it on the run and whacks it in the corner. Then they scored two gorgeous team goals against Hungary, one by Tigana, one by Roche, I think, which comes from a... It's not even a goal kick, it's a a pass from bats down the left wing Mm. to Platini. Controls it, flicks it with the outside of his foot, and Rostov scores. Um, I think uh, it's worth saying that before this, I think Hungary were reasonably well fancied, um, and USSR just blew them away in the first game. It was 2 0 after three minutes, and the second of those goals is a famous one from Alenikov, where he absolutely roofs it from about 30 yards, mm. and they went on to butcher them 6 0. Yeah,
1: um, not for the first time. The uh, Hungarians were steamrolled by uh, the Soviet Union.
2: And. Um, and France won USSR 1, which is a really high-class game, as well as Fernandez's goal, which is beautiful. The most well-remembered goal from that game is Vassily Ratt, again, roofing one from 30 yards. Yeah. Just, and it ties in also with what you were saying earlier about the ball, actually. Yeah. Absolutely zinging into the top corner. Um, so, yeah, and it, just one footnote, actually. One interesting thing is the first game France beat Canada 1-0. Jean-Pierre Papin scored the winner, a young Jean-Pierre Papin, but he missed so many chances. He looked like an absolute donkey. You would never have known he would go on to be one of the most clinical finishers, probably of all time. He just looked so shit, frankly. Um, and Canada worried Kennedy didn't they weren't embarrassed, you know they lost all three games, didn't score, but they one nil two nil two nil, um, which was kind of a decent return really um, in such a tough group. Um, and I'll shut up now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mike, now you're back.
0: Yeah, oh yeah, poor Papan. he had a nightmare in that opening game. Um, I think something similar happened to uh, uh, Vialli in one of the Italy games. And you, you yes. would never know from this World Cup that those two players would would go on to have like the amazing careers that they had. Um, obviously, the standout game in this group, France uh, versus the USSR, that's a proper heavyweight first-round clash, that uh, really high-quality game as well. Both the goals in it, as Rob said, were brilliant. And
2: Um, just a quick, those games are always quite interesting because you pretty much knew they were going to qualify second game they've won, But it's more about making a statement, isn't it, of being good enough to win it. And I think both teams did it in that game.
0: Looked like
2: like serious contenders. It was a superb game of football.
1: Yeah. And uh, as I say, I, I was only talking off the top of my head, but the more I'm thinking about it, the more if you give me one European side in my lifetime that I've got to watch all their matches on repeat on the desert island that were soon about to be quarantined too, um, <laughs> then it, it probably would be that France team of, yeah, of the midfield. the four musketeers. The midfield yeah. was
2: glorious. Platini, Jures, Tigana and Fernandes, yeah. um, one of the all-time great midfields, the, the Magic Square as they were known.
1: The magic square, indeed. Uh, so we move to um, actually group. just a just a oh, quick
2: No, just a quick on that magic square. It's actually the first time they played together in a World Cup because um, in '82, Fernandez wasn't there. They only played together for the first time reasonably late in their careers, but a few months before '84, I think.
1: Um, so this was the first time they'd been seen at a World Cup, and
2: yeah, they were they were just, yeah superb to watch.
1: As a kind of sideline, it's it's often the case that the combinations in football that we consider to be iconic. You know, at Everton, it's the holy trinity yep. of Ball, Kendall and Harvey in midfield. When you actually look at the stats, um, it's, it's that they didn't play together all no, that often. No, um, right. And it's uh, it's just, it's one of those things, it's partly injuries, it's partly, um, but there's maybe there's just a little more shine that goes on these iconic combinations in football—if they didn't have a long period of decline, you know—if they—if they—if they weren't sort of playing on uh, too long—I think the exception to that would be the the great uh, Spanish side with Iniesta mm-hmm. and uh, Xavi and so on, who just seem to be brilliant all the time. But um, it's it's kind of an aside. Yeah, it was the magic yeah. square, as you say. So we move to Group D, and in Group D again, there are, there are the two. Uh, the class of the field is, is clearly Brazil, who won all three matches, uh, Spain, who only lost uh, to Brazil and by the odd goal, and then uh, Northern Ireland, who huffed and puffed and did their best, and Algeria, who were, um, I think it's pretty fair to say, um, prior to kind of the Cameroons, as they were inaccurately called in 1990, we kind of looked at uh, African teams and thought, well, they're going to finish bottom. And uh, sure enough, they, they did. But the. Um, the not Renaissance, but the 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 birth of Africa as a, a real player on the world stage was still, I think, four years off. Um, but uh, Brazil, the the glorious yellow shirts, jozimar and uh, Caraca, and and those was Caraca in this World Cup. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah so.
0: very much. So,
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, Mike, what's your view on on uh, on Brazil in particular in this uh, group stage?
0: Well, I think that whenever Brazil play in a World Cup, there's always a lot of pressure on them, I think, to be the team that provides the memories and, you know, the great moments of skill, but never more so than in this World Cup, I think, because of what they'd done in 1982. Um, and they've been through a few years of chopping and changing managers. Uh, the the great 82 started falling apart, but um, Teixe Santana, the manager in 82, was re- reinstalled for this uh, I think for the qualifying and this World Cup, and in Ocean's Eleven style, he'd gone around <laughs> and, go, and got the old, uh, got the old gang back together for one more job. Um, so they arrived at this <laughs> World Cup with a lot of key players in their 30s. I think Zico was 33 by this point and came into the tournament injured as well. I mean, I've just carrying an injury right through the whole thing. Uh, Junior had moved into. Midfield, but they had some exciting new players as well. Careca, uh, who'd had to pull out in '82, was playing up front. Branco at left back. Uh, really Socrates great players. Socrates played
1: in the, first, in the first game, which I. Yeah, he was have captain, guessed. Socrates, okay.
0: yeah. Um, and great kid. Also, that Brazil Spain game, the opening game, uh, they went it 1 0, Brazil, but just about. And there's a. Spain actually, well, they should have had a goal allowed, which hit the bar, came down. It's one of many moments in this tournament that VAR would have, uh, <laughs> you know, a kind of uh, you know, VAR controversy. Just seems like a long, long time ago now, doesn't it? But uh, yeah. yeah um, uh, so anybody,
1: but, anybody who had sixty, sixty-one minutes on the first mention of VAR, you could yeah. really collect your <laughs> prize at the raffle. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, if, if
2: if you apply VAR to that game, Spain would one 0 because not only Michel's goal was over the line, but also Socrates <laughs> was then offside. But he was oh, so
0: far offside, though.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he so, was wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but obviously, you know, I had to go behind him. Um, I yeah, I mean, I know on that one other thing on that Brazil team—the centre back pairing of Adinho and Julio Cesar were fantastic. Like, oh, mm. I know Chris Freddy, who whose history of the World Cup I can't recommend highly enough. He thinks they were the best central defensive pair in the world at the time. And certainly, Brazil only conceded one goal in five games, which supports that view. Um, mm. I would argue that this is one of the few Brazilian sides at any World Cup that have been very good in attack and in defence. Even 1970 and 1982, mm-hmm. two teams we probably love the most, they were shambles in defence. You certainly yeah, couldn't say that about this team. Shambles. Um, yeah.
0: yeah,
1: and then obviously I remember what Julio Cesar. Yeah, I uh, remember Julio Cesar. He looked like a kind of German centre back who was playing for Brazil. He was so comfortable on the ball, positionally brilliant, strong. He had absolutely everything going for him.
2: Um, Caraca got yeah, Caraca got three goals in the D group. Uh, was clinical, uh, and then obviously there's a Yosimar story, which someone yeah. can talk about anytime they like if they want. Yeah, he he looked well. Well, he, you've written the
0: definitive like blog on it. Rather think a you should, you should go talk.
1: play yeah, yeah so he well, he was but he was such a he was such a kind of crazy sort of um his running style even when he celebrated goals he, he, all the limbs are going in different directions the ball never seemed to be under control and yet he created literally unforgettable moments he was actually unemployed at the
2: time he, he contract had run out with <laughs> he, hadn't, he was uncapped unknown unemployed hadn't played for three months i think and basically what happened was mm. Leandro the first choice right back basically pulled out after a few of them had gone on the piss and missed a curfew. <laughs> and Harato Gaosho was chucked out of the squad. And Leandro, who was having problems at the time, he's kind of, I think it was a kind of guilty kind of um, solidarity, so he pulled out. Edson Boaro, who was became the first choice got injured after 10 minutes of their second game they actually didn't bring Yosimar on them because it was only five subs so they brought on I think it was Falcao and rejigged it but then by the third game Josimar just by process of elimination played scored that crazy goal against, uh, against Northern Ireland from about 30 yards uh, and then did it again against Poland and what's interesting about that is that um, ties in with what you said about no one knowing these players. So in our imagination, he's been doing that every week for the last three years and for the next three years. <laughs> of course, in reality, he'd never done it before and didn't do it again. um But it, but it all added to the the kind of magic of the World Cup around that mm-hmm. time. What? Well, just one other thing in that group: um Spain, Northern Ireland, which was a pivotal game, the second game, um and it was Northern Ireland had an outside chance, you know, because of course mm. they beat Spain in eighty two. Um, it's worth a couple of things. Spain won two one and were much better, but um scores the first goal after a beautiful pass from Michel. It's absolutely brilliant, it's worth looking up. And Northern Ireland's goal scored by Colin Clark comes from is one of the most fast school uh, in the World Cup. It's absolutely ridiculous. There's a, a, a stupid <laughs> back pass. Zubach to shanks it up in the air. I don't know why he doesn't catch it. And then he try and then he falls over and Clark heads it in. It's it's proper raffle territory. Mm. Um so, yeah, but but I think Ireland also, you know, it was Pat Jennings' last game uh, against Brazil. He actually had a really good game. They lost 3-0, but he made some great saves, um, and they just like, the, what they had in 82 had gone, really. Even even Whiteside wasn't quite as dynamic as it had been then, um, and they weren't great. They'd done well to qualify, actually, ahead of an emerging Romania side that included uh, Gigi Hadji, mm-hmm. and they'd done pretty well to qualify. So uh, it was always likely that Spain and Brazil will go through, and of course, the fact they both beat Ireland and Algeria, who then drew with each other, meant neither of them went through in the third place position. Yeah,
0: yeah, that was the the last stand of Billy Bingham's yeah exactly. team, really. I mean, their their high point had really been in eighty two, and it was virtually the same side as well, yeah. uh, but bar a couple of changes. Um, a quick point on Pat Jennings actually is that he was unemployed in this World Cup as well. So I think he... Oh, shit, he was, yeah. He signed a short-term contract with Everton to cover them after Southall got yeah. injured. I think he was like their reserve keeper, wasn't he, at the eighty-six uh, Cup final, I believe, and then yeah, was released Bobby after. Yeah, was
1: playing, I think. And, uh, yeah, yeah, so
0: when Josimar puts that one past him from, I don't know, two miles away, whatever it was, <laughs> uh, not only is Josimar unemployed, but Pat Jennings is unemployed. <laughs> and You know, two people being unemployed in the mid-80s is not, you know, a, a news flash, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah quite 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 extraordinary that that could happen i mean i don't think you would get any football when they were going to a world cup that doesn't you know it isn't implied by an actual football club it's uh, well if yeah, quite if we're playing
1: out the uh, the fixtures in the premier league in uh in july they uh, there might be half the squad's unemployed technically but uh, yeah. but uh, the, the old rule book is well and truly out of the window for the next few months in england and if you're if you're listening to this um from some windswept mad max territory in 2021 where you've got a crackling internet and you, you're just getting it then yes we are recording this in in march 2020 so that's why we we have these uh references Um, I'm not sure that one day we'll look back and laugh but one day we'll look back and think thank God we got through it all Mm -hmm. Uh, but we're we're on to group E and we're going to do groups E and F and then we're going to stop our... um, our uh, podcast and return at some later stage hopefully quite soon with the uh, knockout stages but in group e uh we have the uh the glory that is uh denmark uh west germany um who were being very much uh germany at this uh, point uh uruguay who uh, were extremely fortunate to get through uh, as one of the lucky third-placed uh, losers with just the two points. And, of course, their victims, inevitably, the Scots, who, uh, who failed to, to get through the stages due to their usual combination of, uh, of ill-fortune and um, Scottishness. Gentlemen.
2: Yes, Uruguay became known as the, the scum of world football as the head of the Scottish FA called them after the group game against Scotland. But they were actually strongly fancied going into this tournament. Probably more so than Brazil and Argentina. They were South American champions. They had a very good record over the preceding few years. They were renowned for a formidable defence and the quality of Enzo Francescoli up front, who, as we said, um, inspired Zinedine Zidane to name his son Enzo. So... It became apparent pretty quickly that um, that they would taken the group of death, literally. Um, yes. and but, but it's easy to forget how high their reputation was before the game, uh, before the tournament, rather. Um, I think that's sometimes lost. I mean, it, it, it was christened the group of death by their manager, Omar Boras... The phrase had been used before, funnily enough, I think it originated in the previous Mexico World Cup to describe England's group. Uh, I think it was England, Brazil, Czechoslovakia, Romania, which actually doesn't sound that deadly, but anyway. But it was popularised by Boras because it went around the world um and, yeah, it's kind of the start of that cult- culture, really. Now you get to the point where, you know, even volleyball over 80s as a group of death. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. So, let me, yeah, let's I not go there. I um. didn't mean <laughs> it like that. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so, um, yeah, Denmark, obviously, was discussed were uh, really strongly fancied outsiders. West Germany weren't a great side, but as you said, they were West Germany. It's interesting to note that Beckenbauer, they, they were without Bert Schuster, would had a row with Beckenbauer, Brilliant playmaker, and they really miss him. And subsequently, it's probably not giving away too much to say they got to the final. And afterwards, Beckenbauer chuckled. Uh, it's in um Lee really Hess's book, Tour, and apparently Beckenbauer was chuckling, saying, Can you believe I got to the final? Well, we got to the final with this group of players. So they were pretty modest. Having said that, they still had some of the core of the team that would uh, subsequently win the World Cup. They had Lotus Mateus, Andy Bremer, Rudy Voller. Um, so that you know, West Germany always good. Scotland, were, Scotland were on the way down. They were managed by Alex Ferguson because um, Jock Stein had died during the last European qualifier, uh, the draw against Wales. Um, and although on paper they looked pretty good, you know, Souness, Nickel, Nicol, uh, McLeish, Miller, Leighton, so on, Strachan, they were kind of, they weren't a great. So Suárez was past it um, and would be dropped for the last game against Uruguay. Uh they were just a bit limited, really. Um, Having said that, I mean, they weren't a terrible son. They were just pretty unlucky to be in such a viciously tough group.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's the the case. I mean, I remember watching the, the 6-1 uh, Denmark against Uruguay. And it was, I mean, Denmark were just sensational. They were just, nobody was going to live with them in, in that form, in that match. Um, some of their attacking play was just astonishing. Uh Mike?
0: Uh, well, yeah, the six one. If I can now do some kind of Stuart Lee style callback to uh, <laughs> what I said <laughs> earlier in the uh, in the podcast, that's uh, a game I asked my dad to tape uh, from memory, and I really because if you know they had John Sieberbeck and Jesper Olsen and Jan Molbu and like the players I'd actually heard of. Uh, and I ended up keeping the tape for, or keeping that game on tape for about four years. I just got absolutely obsessed with it. It's and it's one of those kind of eighties memories that that holds up. You know, it's not some kind of sugar coated piece of nostalgia where my memory of it is uh, actually better than the actuality. It's a, it's just a stunning performance to dismantle the, the South American champions like that, which I think is still their joint worst ever defeat in Uruguay's entire history, and it was at the World Cup. And, you know, Denmark, they had that kit. It was very striking, looked amazing. They played, it it felt like total football and fast forward. It was just uh, stunning to watch. And the, the, the obsession with that game, I don't think if I hadn't taped that game and got that obsessed with it, I don't think Rob and I would ever have chatted about it to the depth that we did where, you know, we went on to... Write a book together about it with Lars uh, Eriksson. So uh, yeah, had I not taped that game, who knows? You know, things work out a different way. But I might not be a, a moderately uh, successful uh, football writer. Um, it, it, it's worth saying
2: that Uruguay had ten men for most of the game. Yeah. But having said that, they had ten men for most of the game against Wave well, longer yeah. against Scotland and drew Neil It was a really joyous performance as well. You know, it wasn't just a thrashing. It was just there was something really beautiful and happy and optimistic about the way they played football. And there were some, again, some fantastic goals. Laudrips, everyone probably remembers this really kind of serene slalom through the defence. It's interesting, when we spoke to him for the book, he said, honestly, I didn't really do much. It's not that special. And at first I thought, yeah, yeah, whatever. Then I actually looked at it and thought, he's sort of right in the sense that when you're a genius, you just see the world through different eyes. And actually, every move was quite simple for a player as good as him. Um, But that goal overshadowed the fact Elkia I think, well, he certainly scored a hat trick, and I think he made two as well. Um, and he was a fantastic centre forward, easily the best mm-hmm. center, number nine in the world at the time. Um, yeah, it was just a lovely performance. They won all three games, they beat Scotland 1 0, which is actually probably their toughest game. They uh, Scotland had a goal wrongly disallowed, and uh, Klaus Bergram was quite lucky to get away with a terrible tackle on Charlie Nicholas, which is very mm-hmm. unlike the Danes. Um, and then they basically went into the last game where um Denmark and Germany were, had already qualified and the winners would play Spain and the losers would play Morocco and there was some talk about whether they should try to avoid Spain especially cuz Spain had beaten Denmark in euro 84 but they basically had a team meeting and decided but as moby said we thought we could take them all so they beat Germany mm-hmm. 2-0 um But there was a a really important footnote to that game when uh, Frank Arneson was sent off with a couple of minutes to go for just like a nothing flick out of Mateus, really. Um, And that was really important because he then missed the second round. And what people didn't know at the time was that um, his wife was extremely ill in hospital. They weren't sure what it was, but at the time it seemed like it would be life-threatening. So he was on edge throughout the game. (laughs) He'd been booked for complaining when he should have had a penalty in the first half. He then got absolutely butchered by Dietmar Jacobs after this glorious piece of skill on the edge of the area. Um, this kind of, he kind of twists his body one way to dummy without touching the ball, then twists it back again, goes past him, gets butchered. Anyway, so you can imagine his temperature rising and rising. Then he kicked out, got he was given a straight red, but I think it was a second yellow. In those days, they didn't show a second yellow. So the upshot of all that meant he missed the Spain game, and they, they really missed him because he was their best playmaker. I mean, they had... Lots of brilliant ball players, but he was the one they could give the ball to who would kind of dictate things. Um, it's probably worth talking a bit about Uruguay Scotland as well. That last game, so we went into it, and Scotland didn't have a point, they'd lost one to Denmark, two one to West Germany. But they still knew that if they won, they would probably sneak through as one of the third best third place teams. Uruguay had a man set off in the first minute for a foul on Strachan.
1: Yeah, and it wasn't. I remember watching that live, and there was a feeling at the time. I mean, now it's a straight red. Of course, it's a straight yeah,
2: red. Yeah, I agree. I thought it was at the, the, the time there was
1: a, a sense of the referee wanting to get his name well, in, in in the press, and oh, also a yeah. bit of punishment for if previous matches. If I
2: think that you're right about the latter. If you actually look at it, there's there's always been some speculation that he actually pulled the wrong card out and just went through with it. And, yeah, and there's something in there. If you look at it, he looks, he pulls it out, and he looks at it as if he's pulled the wrong one and just waves it anyway. We'll never know, but it wouldn't surprise
1: me. But it, actually, it would have come 10 minutes later anyway.
2: Exactly, and it actually made guy's mind up for them. Any pretence, because they, they knew a draw would give them two points and probably get them through. Um, so any pretence they had of trying to play just went out the window. But And also, it gave them actually a weird kind of uh, impunity, because they kind of sensed that the ref wouldn't have a bottle to send another one off. So yeah. they just kicked and dragged and basically manhandled Scotland for 90 minutes.
1: Francesca it was, was an appalling match. Appalling it was a desperate game.
2: Francescini was brilliant in buying them time, holding the ball up and so on. But oh, it was a desperate game. And as I said, after that game, Ernie Walker, the head of the Scottish FA, called them the scum of world football. Um, and yeah, it was just... A, it was a There was some bad... <laughs> it's was a good World Cup, but there were some stinking games in it. And that was possibly the worst of the lot.
0: You know, well, now, one
1: of the worst World Cup yeah. games full stop. Then Mexico eighty six. But yes, mate.
0: <laughs> yeah, one story I love from this group is I I heard this um I heard Craig. Uh, sorry, Craig Brown, who was uh, Fergie's right hand man at this this World Cup, he, he said this story on uh an STV program I saw once. <laughs> that he spoke to Bertie Votes at a coaching seminar. This is years and years after the eighty six World Cup and uh they were talking about the the Scotland West Germany game, and her votes told uh, Brown that he'd been asked by Beckenbauer and and you know the the West Germany officials to disguise himself as a Gatorade salesman uh, and go down to the Scotland <laughs> training ground and sort of take <laughs> notes on their training. And this is a guy who's got a World Cup winners medal, <laughs> and he's going, you know, incognito uh, with, with lots of Gatorade. Cup. Of his... Yeah, <laughs> it's just yeah. an astonishing like that that someone that's, with, with that standing in the game would, would have been made to do that. But, you know, the things oh. you'll do for your country, I suppose. And um, If I could um, just go back to... I don't want to get too uh, Denmark heavy Oh, do, this, but, do, but, mate. Uh, uh Yeah, I mean, I would just say Denmark, so on the pitch and off the pitch as well, went for this World Cup um, like you would see few other countries do, I think. I think Piontek on the pitch, you know, certainly knew that with the age demographic of this squad you know, this could be, this was one shot for the players. I mean, all the key players, apart from Michael Loudrup, were either in their 30s or about sort of 28, 29. So, you know, it was, it was probably going to be their one hit at the World Cup. And they did loads of, like, advanced things like, you know, altitude training. Uh, their preparation was honed to the thou of an inch. And I think when we interviewed Piontek for the book, there was this kind of theory going around beforehand that Denmark had overtrained and they'd overprepared, which is why they were so good early on, and then um, sort of crashed out in the second round. But he made the point was like you don't beat Uruguay six-one if you're not well prepared, and that's actually it's been dismissed by quite a few of the players as well. Like Jesper Olsen um, wouldn't have a bar on that either. So that's that's on the pitch, but off the pitch, you know, you had the kit obviously. Uh, you had the novelty song and uh, when I interviewed Jesper Olsen for this he said that um, all the players had the kind of same feeling that the Euros had been great but the Euros was kind of on your doorstep going to Mexico for the players and for the fans I mean they took about 20,000 fans out with them I think more than any other visiting nation Uh, he said it felt like an adventure and you know the the pitch being relayed back home you had that kind of formative satellite television technology, which uh, was actually a, a bit disastrous in the first few days of the World Cup. They lost they lost uh, the feed on a lot of the games, I remember. Um, but it all added to the sense of it was for Denmark, because it was their first World Cup, it was this great voyage into the unknown for them on the other side of the Atlantic. And, uh, you know, when you, you have that, and that was a feature of this Denmark team, I think, the kind of pioneering spirit of them being the first ones to do something like that it, yeah, it's just a real unique and special thing
1: yeah and if any listeners haven't read uh the the book to which you're, you're referring it's just a fantastic uh read um from start to finish uh, danish dynamite is, is is that what it's called
2: it's sex by Madonna. sorry what <laughs> <laughs> Yes, <laughs> Danish Dynamite, the story of football's greatest cult team, I think. Uh, it's,
1: mm. it's absolutely, absolutely splendid. I'll just add a little bit of kind of cultural um, history uh, as well, is that um, the Danes looked very Danish, uh, shall we put it that way, and it was it was still relatively rare for, for foreign players to speak English, and I think pretty much all of them uh, spoke English. But the other thing was, in 86... Um, the, the full-on sort of Ibiza culture had not taken off, but plenty of young Brits, including me, had uh, had been on holiday to the likes of Ibiza and Mallorca. And whenever you came across Danes, boy, did you have a lot of fun, sometimes a bit more fun than you should have, if you know <laughs> what I mean. But... um. God, the Danes were great fun abroad. So there was real affinity with these kind of beautiful, godlike uh, figures who had this wonderful combination of a, a, a kind of uh, relaxed European attitude, but also a uh, that you get perhaps more in the in the south of Europe, but a, a hard edge that you get in the in the in the north of Europe. They were such such a fantastic side, and I'd say it kind of squared with a no doubt uh, stereotypical, but nevertheless. Empirically evidenced uh, view that these these Danes were somehow sort of southern Europeans who found themselves in in, in northern Europe and managed to combine the best of, of both worlds. <laughs> Um, so we'll go on to to Group F and then we'll wrap up this part. And you know, lads, if only we'd done research, we'd have had more to talk about, eh? Um, <laughs> we'll go to Group F and that's England's group there. And England had a, a had a very strange uh, passage, but eventually they they got through. And uh, would you believe? And it is hard to believe, looking back on it, the group was topped by Morocco. Um with four points, uh, England with uh three, and we'll come to how those three were acquired I'm sure uh, later, level with Poland, who also progressed as one of the best of the third place uh, teams with three, and Portugal, who uh, ironically got the Spanish archer uh, and uh, were out with uh, just two points um, so um gentlemen, the story of the group that had our eyes peeled and our hearts in despair before the glorious rescue.
2: Sorry, uh, come yes, come. well, it's worth saying, <laughs> you take away your kind of English concerns, and actually it was a pretty crap group, certainly the first, yes. there were two goals in the first four games, uh, so uh, Morocco nil, Poland nil, Portugal won England nil, England nil, Morocco nil, Poland one, Portugal nil, and um, in those games, of course, there were little stories. England were kind of stung a bit by Portugal, uh, late goal from Carlos Manuel. They then drew with Morocco. Uh, Ray Wickham, as you probably remember, was sent off in the first half for throwing the ball at the referee, <laughs> or sort of throwing it at him in his direction. Uh, Brian Robson dislocated his shoulder, um, and England were in serious trouble. Uh, they, at that stage, no one realised how good Morocco were. And of course, there were still the prehistoric attitudes to African football. So... It was seen as a disgrace drawing with Morocco, even though it was actually a decent result to draw with 10 men because Morocco were a fine team, and had England lost that game, they would have been in serious trouble. They were still in all kinds of trouble going into the Poland game, um, and I'll let Mike tell the story of that. I'll just quickly go on to Morocco-Portugal, um, which Morocco had actually been quite conservative in the first few games, drawn them both nil nil we were a bit too conservative against 10-man England. But in the last game, they battered Portugal. They scored two fantastic goals. There was one particular... I could, I'm not sure whether it was Kyrie or Crema. I think it was Kyrie who scored it, but it was a long cross from the right and a brilliant volley um, back across goal from the just inside the area. Um, so they were... Uh, basically deserve group winners. They've been kind of the equal of Poland and England and then, yeah, far too good for Portugal. Um, And England were playing at the same time uh, going into the Poland game and basically they knew they might get through with a draw, I think I'm right in saying. But obviously, a defeat, they were gone, a win, and they would be through. Uh, And the next 90 minutes changed Gary Liddicka's life?
0: Yeah, mate. Yeah, Yeah, so... It's uh, this tournament for England, I mean, this happens quite a lot to England at World Cups as well, is that you start out with one team, uh, which is quite conservative in many ways, and then you find your best team uh, by chance as the tournament goes on. I mean, we were talking before about the the Magic Square coming together, uh, you know, very late and, you know, almost by so much of football and the way teams are formed and built is so random and it's so, you know, there's, there's so little design to it sometimes. Um, And It's certainly the case uh, uh, here with England, I think. So what happened with uh, Wilkins and then Robson, what that did was that gutted the England midfield basically. And it forced uh, Bobby Robson into a decision about what to do. So he brought Glenn Hoddle in from uh, playing out on the right, uh, put him in the middle with Peter Reid and then uh, put Steve Hodge and Trevor Stephen out on, on the wings, and then brought Peter Beardsley in to replace Mark Haightley to play up front with Gary Lineker, and then Beardsley and Lineker just clicked straight away, and then for f- well, f- four, or five years until well, until Graham Taylor dropped Peter Beardsley. <laughs> um, it's you know it was a just one of the best striking partnerships that England's ever had. Arguably the best it's ever had. Um, and yeah, from all the, the kind of gloom around the tournament, particularly after the draw with Morocco, there's all these shots afterwards of the fans in the street uh, streets screaming, oh, it's a disgrace and we want our money back uh, in that kind of entitled way that they do. Um, yeah, they just obliterated Poland in the first half, basically. And it's, yeah, it's a hat-trick at a World Cup uh, for Gary Winneker and it, it's the kind of thing that changes your life. It's something that stays with you and other people forever. You know, you only have to ask Jeff Hurst or, you know, Power Rossi about that. Um, and a brilliant performance, but also it so nearly went wrong in the first five minutes. Yeah. I think Poland, Poland break on England. Uh, is it Boniek that gets through? And I think yeah, um, sure. Shilton oh Butcher gets a foot makes he? a save and then someone has to clear it up. I think Butcher has to clear it almost off the line and they get a magnificent he does yeah and then Barry Davis who's yeah. on Coventry delivers a sort of um, <laughs> brilliant kind of oh, what was it oh England cannot afford to make crass errors crass errors that's it Yeah. Uh, that also- kind of head map yeah, even head. just just before that, on, Rob,
2: when Fenwick passes the ball straight to a Polish player on the halfway line, Davis just goes ah, mm. <laughs> it's brilliant. And you're right, it's a proper headmasterly yeah. bollocking, isn't it? It's wonderful. Oh, it really is. Yeah. And also, it's worth like to... how... just quickly it's worth Go saying on, how sorry. good the first two England goals are. to yeah, team um... goals, particularly the second one. Beardsley plays a brilliant first time pass down the left to Hodge. First time cross, and Lydica meets on the halfway line. It's a really superb goal.
0: Yeah, I'd like to hear from you on this, Gary. Actually, because yeah, this is well, a sen- this is essentially Everton three, Poland 0, So, <laughs> <laughs> so, well, what are your memories well, of this?
1: Well, you know, far be it from me to play the part of the chippy scouser, but um, <laughs> we we couldn't really we couldn't really understand. Um, Everton fans couldn't understand why Everton and Liverpool have been the outstanding club sides in in English football, certainly. In eighty six and and eighty five mm. as well, Liverpool has won the double in eighty six, and Everton won the league by a street and the cup winners' cup in eighty five, and he finished second to Liverpool in eighty six, and was uh, also played in the cup final and so on. So by any criteria, you would expect the two best teams. Now Liverpool didn't have a huge number of of uh, English qualified uh, players, but we were just we were just wondering why weren't the Everton players playing because yeah. you know Gary Stevens was in the in the side and, and Lineker was and Lineker had only played the one season at Everton but um, I remember watching it watching the match and thinking this is do or die and you know surely they've got to come through but immediately that first goal went in I just thought we're going to win this and we were going to win it because we had four Everton players and I recognized I recognised. It's not really the style of play. Um, you know, we didn't really talk that much about formations. Almost everybody played 4-4-2. Four, four, but it was just the kind of approach that England had that I could see was was had a parallel with the England side and that was you know Gary Stevens was at right back Peter Reid was centre midfield Trevor Stephen who was a glorious player was playing out wide and we had uh, Lineker up front but it just seems it just seemed incredible that the, the the first two matches um you looked at the leading sides in in English uh football and you, know, you just didn't see their players being being picked and you know you had the likes of Terry Fennec in the in the side and one or two one or two others where you're thinking surely that there, there, there'd be better players than that but as soon as that first goal went in I remember just relaxing and you know yeah. other England fans especially um, knowing what we now know about penalty shootouts and everything else might think you know that um, that uh, that nobody was was comfortable with that but i remember i was and then the next goal went in 5 minutes uh, later and Lineker was outstanding in that game you know he that i don't know which goal it was maybe it's the first one when he just goes across the man at the near post and he gets yeah. that that ball and it wasn't then but all the time I hear about, I hear that cliche that, that you know, he's gamble going in, that you don't gamble when you go to the near post. You go for the ball and then you try and score. You gamble when you hang out wide. And Lineker attacked the ball so well um, throughout his career, but, you know, especially at that moment when, you know, the, the whole of the tournament was on the line. I mean, God knows how many million people were watching it. I mean, mm-hmm. I... I I can't remember exactly, but I think it was a Friday. I'm, Where did I'm you watch it? Yeah. I think Morocco.
2: Uh, I think Morocco was a Friday. I think Poland. Yeah, was maybe a Morocco GD. was
1: a Friday. Yeah. I was. I was not in the flat here because I was at my old student house. So I was about to move possibly that that weekend, and I watched it at home on a on a a, a Trinitron, the Sony Trinitron telly, because there was no culture then of going to the pub and, and watching it. So um, I was in a house, uh, poor old me, um, with uh, three girls and me. And they weren't really that interested in football. Um, you know, Italian ninety hadn't hadn't happened. So I was I was sitting there. I think I was too nervous to to drink or anything like that. And I was just l- looking up. It was on the uh, top of a chest of drawers. So I was looking up at this Trinitron telly in my in my room. And you know, I think I, I jumped up and punched the air as we all did when the first goal went in. But after that, I remember thinking, "Well, we're going to win this." Um, and and sure enough, we did. Mm-hmm. But I think that was because. I'd seen four of those players win so much towards the tail end of '84 through '85, and then and then '86, and I, I I just got that that feeling uh, there, and and you know that was a that was a springboard. It was an amazing transformation, really, from a a side that looked paralysed by fear, by lack of um, of self belief, by uh, tactics that seemed hard to discern. Who just just couldn't seem to to pull themselves together and there was some talk that there were harsh words said on the training ground and the mm-hmm. uh the sainted bobby robson who is obviously a, a a tremendous man much loved by everybody but um he had some uh, fairly forthright words said uh, in his direction as well and you know that we can't overstate how important that first goal was mm-hmm. um and then once Linica got that um all of a sudden there was the heads were up um the the players wanted the ball um there were gloriously ambitious passes played and you know not the the whinging and the slumping of shoulders when when they they went uh, out of play um and it was it was just Kind of fantastic. I mean, maybe, maybe it's harsh, but maybe the kind of start of that feeling was when Wilkins got sent off in the in the previous match when. You know, there was a sense then of you know, and, and Bobby uh, Brian Robson had just been uh, substituted. There was a sense then that it, it couldn't get any lower, but there was also a sense that maybe this was the the old guard, and we needed something new. And Robson's hand was was forced by by losing his central midfield uh, too, and um, all of a sudden, say so the, the the energy. I think Trevor Stephen was probably twenty two or something like that at at this point uh, coming into the side. Beardsley was so inventive and such a sprite in and around the box and Lineker was probably about 24 and suddenly found his form Um, it was was a glorious time to be an England fan and I know we'll cover this and it's slightly flagging up what we're going to do in the next episode but you know we weren't far off winning the whole bloody thing (laughs) you know, we really weren't uh, but perhaps that's a, a note at which we can wrap up this episode, which we thought would uh, would last an hour tops, mm-hmm. and I think we've gone slightly over. Um, but we can I we'll just? Hope... Oh, sorry,
0: oh, Gary. Yeah, can I...
1: we'll, we'll just add up with some mm-hmm. final uh, thoughts from from you guys before we, oh, as I say, we wrap up and we return with the knockout stages. I hope quite soon. But Mike,
0: uh, yeah, just to, just to agree with you really on the the Lineker goal, it felt like a rock coming off the whole. Uh thing in terms of the, the release of pressure and you realise I think these tournaments there's, there's so much about uh, momentum and this happened 10 years later at Euro 96 as well so as soon as Gaza scored against Scotland it was a completely yeah. different tournament so the and everything that went before is just like immediately forgotten so in Euro 96 the Switzerland game was forgotten the terrible first half against Scotland was forgotten and uh, here for it's England just, it, yeah yeah but it's, it's like they're it's like their tournament starts uh in this game I think and there was there was so much on this Poland game because partly because of England's history with Poland as well you had the whole you know yeah. missing out on the 1974 world cup Tomaszewski Tomaszewski yeah. so those kind of things and this is one reason why I think international football will always um always persevere is that yeah you know you have uh, the the previous results between nations just hang over these things. And as we'll come to in the next episodes, you know, events off the field as well uh, between nations can uh, have a bearing on events as well. But, um... Mike, I think you make a
1: yeah. perceptive point because the cliche is that goals change matches, but actually goals change tournaments as well, which is not said as often, but you can usually look at a tournament, um, maybe not all of them, but you can identify certain goals in which you know they they don't just alter the course of a match. They alter the whole feeling, not just within the camp, but outside the camp uh, as well. And, um, you know, maybe there's a maybe there's a future Ness and Dormer on on goals that change tournaments or change seasons because we mm-hmm. could probably come up with five or six just off the top of our heads, but um, there'd be others as well. But certainly in the top five goals that I've seen watching England, Lineker's goal against Poland is one of the most critical ones. But should we um any any more thoughts from you, Mike and Rob, and then we'll wrap and we'll go to uh look at the group stage in our next instalment, Mike.
0: Uh yeah, well just to just to wrap up on Group F, um, it seems extraordinary really. But Portugal they won their first game, which you it should be like feet up and cigars out after <laughs> that. Um, but they they managed not to qualify. And if, if you just compare that to the the group previously. Yeah, uh, so to Portugal had two points. Uruguay, I got through with um, with two points as well, having drawn two games and having been battered six one. So it just shows you the yeah. vagaries of the uh, uh, the third place system. I think.
1: Was this the last World Cup where there's two points for a win in the group uh, stage? Italia
0: ninety did it as no, well, no, 90, and then they yeah. they changed it for USA oh, really? ninety four. Wow. yeah,
1: that late, amazing. Uh, Rob, any closing remarks on the group stages?
2: Uh, yeah, just uh, pr- probably three things. I think my abiding memories or kind of interesting points. I think I, I think with Maradona, kind of all the evidence was there of what he was about to achieve. Um, I don't think people realised it at the time, but you can definitely see a, a kind of level of performance that suggests he is absolutely on one, um, and, and he would obviously that, the, the importance of the knockout games would elevate that even further. Um, I think my abiding memory at the time is probably just... It felt like every time I looked at TV, a, a USSR player was leathering one in from 30 yards. Um, and, then, <laughs> and, then the sheer, <laughs> and then the sheer joy of Denmark, really, who were the yeah. unquestionably team of the first round to win all three games in a group of death in your first tournament, playing yeah. the most joyous, futuristic football. Um, I think only two teams won all their games, Denmark and Brazil. Brazil were excellent, but um, yeah, Denmark were... And I, I know I would say that having... Written a book with Mike and Lars, but they were, I think, objectively. I think they were absolutely the team in the first round.
1: Was this the 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 greatest group stage of a, a World Cup? I can't think of one better.
2: I don't know. I'd Maybe eighty two. I'd have to think about that. I don't know. Probably yeah. not. I'd probably say the the. I mean, the, the earlier ones when Moore was riding on the group stage is probably, probably. But I don't know. I I think it was good. I think the the, the thing that stands out is the, the sheer number of outstanding goals. Uh, and a variety yeah. of them as well: long-range blooters, team goals, mm. elegant individual goals. Um, and I think that applies to the tournament as a whole. The one thing I would say about Mexico '86 is I don't think there's ever been a tournament with as many great goals.
0: No. Yeah, the protocol well. for these kind of things, Gary, is you're meant to say it's the greatest tournament ever after the group stage, yeah. and, then, and then watch it descend <laughs> into a nil-nil <laughs> matches.
2: Uh, Mediocrity
0: after. But if I, uh, for me, for me, this tournament, I think. My abiding memory of it is just falling deeper and deeper in love with football and the whole... I mean, I was eight years old. Obviously, your first World Cup's a very impressionable moment. Uh, the whole colour of it, uh, the amazing goals, uh, and also binging on football because there wasn't a lot of football on television then. No. So to have no. all these games every day and highlights packages, you just thought, well, this is great. And um, yeah, that's what that's my abiding memory of it is just... I I was just thinking well all World Cups are going to be like this uh, and they, they they haven't proved to be sadly but uh, and it's it's also you're talking about generations where the great players who went into the World Cup and you knew they were the great players beforehand they actually fronted up and did some of their best stuff you know like Maradona and you know Putini and Laudrup and these kind of people and it's I think it's a disappointment in modern World Cups now that the you know players like uh, Messi and Ronaldo they've never been, you know they've never really done that i don't think um but but i mean that no, that um, used to happen half the course so
1: you know i'd love i'd love i mean who knows that the world is different from hour to hour at the moment never mind from week to week uh i'd love looking at these dates here the first match was on the 31st of may and the final was uh where is it on the uh 29th of June there I'd love for the BBC or some streaming service to stream every game from 86 and they could do 82 and they could do the others at the exact time on the exact day that it was played, so we can kind of relive the whole tournament if you wanted to. Now, even the three of us probably wouldn't watch it. Wouldn't watch every match, but wouldn't it be great to think, "Oh, it's uh, it's England against Poland tonight," and you had to, you know, so you you got it there, and it was there on some kind. Of- the BBC platform or something like that and I'm not talking about sort of on demand here I'm talking that you you know most mm-hmm. people are in and they could do it but you just show it live as if as if it was happening there I, I, oh I would love that I really would <laughs> having said that I'd probably only watch about four or five but wouldn't it be great
2: I suspect there might be a few stereotyped aside to the, the uh, commentaries and punditry that might not work too well in 2020 <laughs> yeah. though. but yeah, I put apart from that it's a would- good
0: idea
1: Mm. Yeah. So on that, uh, we'll leave you at this midpoint of uh, Mexico 86. Um, We're going to probably stay on uh, and talk about when we can do the uh, group stage. Um, But for now, I'll say thank you very much to Rob Smythe. Thank you. And to Mike Gibbons. Thanks, guys. And uh, of course... To you, our listenership. I've been Gary Naylor, and this has been Mexico 1986, the group stages.
0: Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: With lucky landslots, you can
0: get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky
2: in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps>